If it bleeds, it leads. From NBC to Fox News to your social media feed, there is an obsession with the awful and abhorrent. If there is controversy or calamity, well, we find that riveting, don't we? Chaos gets clicks. We've said it before, but I don't think I've ever heard a news story a breaking, ordinary family living happily together on Main Street. Husband stays with wife. Children obedient at dinner. No, we much prefer the stylings of sin to order and peace. Yet, as we come to 1 Kings and cover portions of chapters 14 through 16, we find that the author is bored by sin. He's not impressed. He intentionally and monotonously evaluates king after king with the same formula. Now the rest of the acts of so-and-so, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, kings of Judah, guide, next king. At this point in Kings, we move to a breakneck pace. I mean, in context, we spent time with David's death, and then Solomon brought the kingdom to its glory. And then, unfortunately, Solomon turned his heart away from the Lord to idols. The kingdom was torn apart. It's torn in two. Jeroboam reigning in the north, and Solomon's son Rehoboam reigning in the south. And what we find now is that it's all downhill from here. The glory is fading. Stick with the nature theme we've been on this morning for some reason. Uh, winter is coming. Sin is marking both Israel and Judah. And the author moves king after king, and he's, he's bored with it. So if, you ever, if you're bored with this section of the Bible, you, you can blame the likes of Jeroboam and Nadab and Basha and Zimri and Omri, okay? But what's interesting is many of these kings are quite successful if we put on worldly spectacles. Yet from the perspective of the author, most of them don't amount to much. And so what I want us to walk away with, though there's all kinds of things in the text today, but what I want us to walk away with this week is I, I want you to, to go away knowing what matters in life. Not success or comfort, power, money, sex. But who has your heart and what direction your feet are pointed in. Those are the two evaluative criteria used by the author. It's going to tell us about the hearts of kings and about the way in which they walk, how they live. Friends, we need to be a people who know what matters, who have our hearts set on the Lord Jesus and our feet walking along the way of righteousness. You can see your outline there before you. 
We, like the author, will try to move quickly. Let's pray. We'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we thank you that the cross broke the great dragon's head. That when we contend with besetting sins, with apathy, with sloth, with lust, with any number of these things, that we are contending with a vanquished foe who, with all his subtlety and strength, has already been overcome. Lord, when we feel that great serpent at our heels, let us remember Jesus, whose heel was bruised, but who, when he bruised, was bruised, broke the head of the devil. Let our souls this morning rejoice in our mighty conqueror. Pray that you would heal us of any wounds received this week in our great conflict against sin. If we have gathered defilement, cleanse us. If our faith has suffered damage, restore us. If our hope is less than bright, ignite it once more. If our love is not fervent, we pray that you would fan it into flame. If creature comforts have come to occupy our hearts, we pray that you would afflict us so that Christ would be central. Lord, do not allow our souls to sink under the pressure of our fight for faithfulness. Remind us with the words of the psalm, why are you downcast, O my soul? I will yet praise him. Lord, teach us to praise you once more this morning. Father, set our hearts on what matters. Set our hearts on Christ and his kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The kingdom is split. Rehoboam ruling in the south, Jeroboam ruling in the north. Last week we saw Jeroboam prophesied against his house stinks like human waste. Every one that pisseth against the wall, every man is going to be burned up as dung. His house smells of death and therefore it will be destroyed. And we read of his death at the end of chapter 14, not anything exciting there, but, but we'll revisit his death later on. Right now, we turn our attention to the south, where Rehoboam, who, remember, ruled like Pharaoh and helped precipitate this split of the kingdom, still sits on Solomon's throne. We're told about him in verse 21, that he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem and that his mother's name was Namah, the Ammonite. Now, this is very interesting because if you look at verse 21, you see that she is named, which is unusual, and then his mother is named again there in verse 31. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. This, once more, to bring your attention to it, is a literary device called an inclusio. Sometimes we think of it as bookends or as, as a literary sandwich, if you will. Uh, these two outside parts, the two mentions of Rehoboam's Ammonite mother, are meant to bring our attention to the things in the middle. She has something to do with this. See, what we are to understand is that the idolatry and the Ammonite worship practices that are going to mark Rehoboam's reign actually come to him by way of his mother through his father. 
Remember, Solomon was told not to take to himself many wives, not to marry foreign women, and who has he married but an Ammonite? He wasn't supposed to marry foreign women or many wives because they would turn his heart away towards their gods. Well, that's exactly what happened in Solomon's life, and now his sin outlasts him. Solomon's sin stretches beyond his grave, like roots growing down into his family, and Rehoboam's worship is Ammonite. And Ammonite worship is very similar to the pagan worship of the Canaanites who once inhabited the land. Indeed, Rehoboam leads all of his kingdom, remember he rules over Judah, into sin. Verse 22, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Israel has become like the Canaanites that they drove out. This is, we're not even a generation removed from Solomon. It wasn't so long ago that he had built the temple and said to the people in verse 61 of chapter 8, Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true, be complete in the Lord your God, walking in the way of his statutes and keeping his commandments at this, as this day. It wasn't so long ago that there was a, a week long rejoicing before the Lord their God. And here we are, and the land is right where it began full of corrupt worship and corrupt people. Rehoboam and Judah conform to the worship practices around them. The orgies and the sodomy that mark the nations, that marks Israel. It's as if the Judah, folks of Judah looked around at the nations and said, you know, we really should be more progressive in our thinking about worship. Be more tolerant. Let's add some of these things in. It's no big deal. It turns out they are no longer distinct as God's people. No, they have been conformed to the world. There's a lesson for us in here, is there not? We who follow Jesus are to live according to the word of Jesus. We're to follow the commands of God. We're to be holy and distinct in our conduct. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world like Rehoboam and Judah. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As the Israelites become like the Canaanites, they will not be exempt from the justice of God. Indeed, God is going to put them into exile. And they'll have a foretaste of that even now. It comes in the form of a, a jab of judgment, if you will, starting in verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, 
Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guardroom. Silver was as nothing in the days of Solomon. But now the people's treasures have been raided. The plundering of the palaces anticipates the coming exile of the people, a people who have exchanged relationship with the real and living God for lifeless idols. Indeed, they have traded gold for bronze, life for death. It is so funny that gold used to be so abundant, it was on the king's table everywhere, silver as nothing, and now they have to guard bronze in a safety deposit box. The kingdom is fading, full of idolatry. And one wonders why God does not take them out completely and swiftly. We are reminded the reason he doesn't do that is because of his promise. Rehoboam dies, and his son Abijah, slash Abijam, he's called both in the Bible, Abijam here, Abijam reigns in his place. And the narrator's conclusion about Abijah's reign is quite simple. It comes to us in verse 3 of chapter 15. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. His feet are pointed in an idolatrous direction. His heart belongs to false gods, not the Lord his God. Nevertheless, verse 4, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So the, the author gives us two reasons that God doesn't wipe out Judah. Uh, one is the covenant faithfulness of God. He keeps his promises. Did you see the second reason, though? It's a little bit surprising. Verse 5, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We talked about this last week where the author said he did only that which is right. The author's a little more blunt this week. He says, well, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And what we learn again here from David is that faithfulness is not flawlessness. We can obey God in such a way as to be pleasing to him as to be considered faithful without being perfect. I think very often in the Christian life, folks consider faithfulness to be the same thing as perfection. And this is not the case. If we look at faithfulness as perfection, it can become really, really discouraging as we try to please the Lord our God. 
David's life here shows us that we can be pleasing to God when we believe his promises, put our faith fully in Christ, and then the heart is set on Christ and on the promises of God, and then with our feet try to walk along the course set out by Christ. Brother Christian, sister Christian, you can please God. Seek to obey him. Our relationship with God is dynamic. It's not static. If you live a life that is marked by sin and you throw off the ordinary means of graces, you don't gather together with God's people, you don't give yourself to God's word, you don't pray, and then you go, I'm so spiritually dry, I don't feel like God's anywhere around. Well, what do you think? Oh, Seek God, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Live to please God. Heavenly Father isn't going to laugh at you as you stumble, as you try to walk. Like no dad is with their toddler. You know, the toddler takes a couple steps and just bites it on their face. No dad is going, oh, worthless. Can't even walk right. No, the Lord understands we're his children. We're going to stumble and fall. But he delights in our steps. He delights in our successes. He delights in our faithfulness. You can please God, and you should seek to please God through your obedience. David, not perfect, not flawless, was faithful. And it's one of the reasons the author gives for God's faithfulness to keep a lamp burning in Jerusalem, that the lamp is simply a symbol of God's presence and his commitment to his promise. It says God is, is here. The lamp is not a literal lamp. It's wrapped up in David's progeny. And it's to say God's still here. He's still in Judah. The night is dark, but, but God is home. Sort of like if you leave a light on in your house at night. If I come by, it shows me someone's home. Someone's here. God is not abandoning his promises or his people. Indeed, the lamp of David stays lit. It'll become very dark. I mean, at the end of Kings, the heir of David's throne is imprisoned, and yet he sits around the table of a foreign king and eats. It's just this slightest sort of candle of hope put out in the window. But we know that that little candle turns into the dawning of the sun when Christ arrives at Christmas and overcomes the darkness, when he comes to live a perfect life in the place of his people, in place of sinners who turn from their sin and trust in him, when he comes to die a substitutionary death in the place of people who deserve nothing but death and hell. Indeed, even here in Abijam's sinful reign, the verdict is clear. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him. His heart was not true to the Lord his God. Abijam sits on the throne as a Christmas light in the darkness. God has not abandoned his people. And God will not abandon you, friend. Praise him, we don't have to look to a corrupt king for hope to a corrupt president or any political party for hope. No, we look to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sits on heaven's throne, 
who sits on David's throne, who rules and reigns over everything right now and is promised to return to make everything well. Praise God, our hope is sure and certain. Christ is our steady anchor. Abijam reigns. His evil is monotonous. It's boring. And God remains faithful. Abijam dies. And Asa comes to the throne. And listen to what the author says about Asa, chapter 15, verse 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. Those of you who are being very literal, father here does not mean like his immediate father. His immediate father is Abijam. David is like his great-great-grandfather, maybe? He's a grandfather somewhere. So he's in David's line, okay? Abijam did evil. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. This gives us hope, doesn't it? Asa should be so encouraging. I mean, maybe you came from a Christian home and and you could follow the faith of your fathers, the faith of your mother. And that's a good thing, to inherit a Christian worldview, the teachings of the gospel. Praise God for that. But some of us are not from Christian homes. Some of us come from pagan homes, from broken homes, from atheistic homes, from homes that are hostile to the gospel. Asa gives us hope. Friends, we can change. Non Christian, you can change the course of your life and your family. You can choose to follow Christ Jesus. You can choose to walk not according to what is right in your own eyes, but according to that which is right in God's eyes. You can choose to forsake the idols of this world and instead set your heart on Christ. Who has your heart? What direction are your feet pointed in? Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God chooses those who are his. Yes, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And yes, you are responsible to choose Christ. You must decide to follow Jesus. No one comes unless the Father draws, and anyone who comes to him will never be cast out. Non-Christian, come to Christ. Turn from your sin, turn from your idols, and like Asa, choose Come to the Lord. He will give you peace and rest. He will not cast you out. Asa does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He changes course. And he has no tolerance for idols. He, he begins smashing up the place. He rids his father's house of all of his idols. And then look what he does in verse 13. He also removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook of Kidron. Now, 
is, is interesting in the text. Uh, this is either his mother or his grandmother or maybe both. Um, I actually think it's both due to some cross-generational incest. I'm not going to go into all that, but it's gross. Uh, it still takes a whole lot of courage and boldness and a commitment to Christ to go to your mama and say, you are not going to be queen mother anymore. I'm going to cut down your favorite idol and I'm going to burn it in the brook at Kidron. I mean, he is going after her sins. In some ways, Asa hates his mother so that he can follow Christ. I like to spin it a different way, though. I think he loves his family and his mother and his community enough to challenge their idols, to speak to them. He is willing to do the hard work of loving those who are set against God. Brother, sister Christian, do you love your family enough to speak to their idols? Do you love your community enough challenge its worship practices. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He, he came to save sinners, not so that well-meaning Christians could make sinners comfortable in their sins. We need some more aces willing to boldly destroy our own idols and to speak to the idols of our friends and our family and our neighbors. Not because we hate them, but because we love them and we're for their good. The end of idolatry is destruction. We see it over and over again, and we do not want destruction for our families. We do not want destruction for our friends. We don't want hell for our communities. We want heaven and life. So we must be bold. And committed to loving hard. Asa was nothing if not wholehearted in his devotion to the Lord. He destroys idols. He's not perfect, though. The chronicler points out that, that later on, and we're going to talk about this military conflict in just a second, in the second part of the chapter. Uh, he's not perfect. He, later on in life, uh, does some political maneuvering and depends upon the king of Syria instead of turning to the Lord. So a prophet comes to him and tells him you should have depended on God and Asa throws the prophet in prison. It's not a good look for him. But the verdict of the author on Asa's life is the same. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 14, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Faithfulness is not flawlessness. You can be faithful without being perfect. Seek to please and love God. That is what matters most. Now, I sort of give you the background. What Asa did wasn't great. But on the face of it, it looked awesome. Right? Success is a poor index for faithfulness. Look with me. Well, I have to tell you about it, I guess. So, Basha is king in the north. The author's going to tell us about him in a minute. There's all these wars going on between north and south throughout our text. And 
Basha comes down and he says, I'm going to take this strategic point called Ramah. It's about five to ten miles north of Jerusalem. It's on the main road. And he's basically, I'm going to reinforce this and create an economic blockade. Bad news bears for Judah. And so Asa, seeing this, says, I, I've got to come up with a solution. Because you know what I'm going to do? I, even though I just put all of this gold and silver back into the Lord's treasury, back into the Lord's house, I'm going to take it out and I'm going to use it to bribe Israel's ally into betraying them. They're going to break covenant with them and serve me. Listen to, to how he proposes it. He goes to the king of Syria, verse 19. Let there be a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending you a bribe of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. Well, king of Syria, one of many Ben-Hadads, uh, says, hey, the one who pays the bills gets the service. And so he serves Asa, and he starts sending his forces throughout various cities in the northern kingdom, in Israel, losing portions of the promised land. Right? Not great for Asa. But, again, from worldly perspective, because he's sort of raiding these towns and, and causing conflict elsewhere, Basha, king of Israel, has to take all, the con- all his people that are working on that construction at Ramah, on that economic blockade, they have to go elsewhere to fight wars. Asa, well, he's opportunistic. He sends all the people from Judah up to take all those construction materials that were left behind and then to take them back and then reinforce their own fortresses. Pretty brilliant. Like at the end of the day, Basha ends up funding the uh, defense of his enemy. Works brilliantly. But again, he trusted in Syria rather than in the Lord. Friends, success and faithfulness are not the same thing. Not the same thing. We must be careful to guard ourselves against pragmatism, against doing what seems to bring immediate returns. We must instead seek to honor God in all of our actions. It might not look pretty now, but it is what will matter most in the end. Asa is a good king does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. His heart is wholly true to the Lord his God all of his days. Asa knew what mattered. His heart was in the right direction, or in the right place. His feet were in the right direction. Which takes us now to the north. We're done with Judah. We're going to go to the north for the rest of the book. And it is all, again, downward slide. Sin upon sin upon sin. We come to Nadab, who is the son of Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam led the people out from Rehoboam's Pharaoh-like rule. It looked to be a new David, a new Moses, and he turned out to be an idolatrous Aaron. He erected two golden calves, made his own false religion up, and all the people worship at those golden calves. He leaves a legacy of idolatry, and he was prophesied against. Ahijah says his whole house will be destroyed, will be burned up. Jeroboam dies, and Nadab, his son, comes to the throne. And in his second year, he comes to an end. The verdict, though, before we come to his end, is in verse 26 of chapter 15. 
Nadab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Nadab repeats the sins of his dad. The sons of the father come to the son. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and the Lord's judgment comes. Basha, verse 27, the son of Ahijah. This is interesting. Ahijah prophesied against the house of Jeroboam, remember? It's the one who said it was going to burn down. Basha is not the son of the prophet, but he is son of someone else named Ahijah. And in God's providence, that reminds us of God's word against Jeroboam's house. It's coming to fruition. Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. That's against Nadab. And Basha struck him down. He killed him. Verse 29, Basha ascends to the throne. And as soon as Basha was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Basha is God's instrument of justice. He assassinates Jeroboam's son, Nadab. And eventually, all the males of Jeroboam's house in fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Basha carries out the word of the Lord, but he also carries on the sins of the house of Jeroboam. Evil can do reruns, but it is not original. It sort of carries with it built-in yawns. We get a Jeroboam rerun in the life of Basha. Basha is described this way, verse 34 of chapter 15. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And this is all going to sound real familiar. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hananiah, against Basha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you a leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Drop down verse 7. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hananiah against Basha and his house. Both, here's the reason for God's judgment on Basha and his house. Both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord. That makes sense to us. He did evil, he's going to be judged provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam. So because he repeated the sins of the house of Jeroboam, God's judgment is going to come on him. And also because he destroyed it. Because he destroyed the house of Jeroboam. Now that that second reason strikes us as a little curious on the face of it, doesn't it? Basha carried out the word of the Lord, right? Fulfilled the prophecy. Yeah, that's right. And now Basha is going to be 
punished for the way in which he carried out the word of the Lord, right? Yeah. Yeah, he is. This is a biblical truth that is important that we grasp. God orders evil. And he judges evil. Like what one commentator said, Basha the butcher was simply a servant of Yahweh. He did his word. This is basic biblical theology. God uses evil men to punish other evil men and later judges the evil instruments he used for their own evil. God orders evil and he judges evil. This is at the very center of our faith. We read it in our scripture reading this morning, Mark 14, 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, planned by God, determined by God. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. God orders evil to serve his good purposes. See it in the life of Joseph. His brothers betray him to death. They mean it for evil. God raises Joseph up out of the pit and out of slavery so that he might preserve his people. God meant it for good. Those are the words that come off of Joseph's lips. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God orders evil according to the counsel of his will. And he judges evil. No one sins and gets away with it. God is just. This is really important for us to understand. Friend, if you try to worship a God who does not order evil, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping a God who is out of control and at the mercy of his creatures. You can have no comfort at night when your head hits the pillow because evil could come upon you outside of God's control. You can have no confidence in the future because God has not orchestrated it. You understand? God orders evil and he judges it. He's in control of everything, from the dust motes that dance in the sunlight to the spinning of the planets in orbit. He orders the clotting of your blood and establishes the steps of your feet. He holds the whole world in his hands. He's God. That's what it means for him to be God. He is sovereign. Everything happens according to his good providence. And he judges evil. You, th this truth shouldn't fall on you as something heavy that crushes you and makes you despair. No, it, it comes to you as something that lifts you up and gives you encouragement and confidence. Because God orders evil according to the counsel of his will, and because he judges evil, Romans 8 is true. We love to quote this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. But that can't be true 
unless God orders all things. Evil is included in all things. God is not out of control. He orders even evil to do his will. He orders all things according to the counsel of his will. And he brings good to his people out of evil. He brings resurrection out of crucifixion for his son. He brings life out of death for all who trust in Christ Jesus. His wisdom is infinite. He is good. He is just and trustworthy. Jesus Christ holds evil on a chain. The time is coming when he will turn that chain into a noose. Evil's corpse will do no more than swing in the wind. It's coming a time when Christ will wipe away every tear from the eye. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Because the former things are going to pass away. As Christ says from his throne, behold, I am making all things new. Be comforted and made confident by the sovereignty of God, by his providence in your life. When we know that God is holding us in his hands, it means we can face any and every trial and circumstance. We can say like Job, when all is taken from us, I will worship you. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Be confident. No evil is out of God's control and no evil will go unpunished. All evil has been or will be punished. It's all been punished on the cross when Christ died for the sins of his people or it will be punished when Christ returns to bring final judgment and justice, to bring peace to the universe. He praise God for the gospel. You and I deserve death. We deserve hell, and yet God, in his kindness, provided for us a lamb. He gave the lamb of God and his blood so that all who take shelter beneath him will live. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Such good news. Yes, wicked men put Christ upon the cross. Yes, God's plan put Christ upon the cross. He suffered under the wrath of God according to the plan of God so that we might sing there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise God for his kindness to us. Basha is God's instrument. He's useful to God, but he's not faithful to God. And therefore, judgment comes upon him. He is judged for his evil in idolatry and his evil against Jeroboam's house. 
And so we find that Basha dies, and his son Elah reigns in his place. Elah, just like Jeroboam's son Nadab, only reigns two years. And then we read verse 9, chapter 16. But his, that's Elah's, servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When Elah was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household in Terzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him. The end of Basha's house is the same as Jeroboam's. Evil can do reruns, but it's not original. And so Zimri ascends to the throne. He only reigns seven days, and yet he will continue the course of sin. Verse 11, when Zimri began to reign, as soon as he seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave Basha a single male of his relatives. The phrase there for single male is the same as it was earlier, one who pisseth against the wall. So the, the point is, is that Basha's house stinks, just like Jeroboam's house stank, stinketh, and now it's being destroyed. He destroyed every single male of his relatives and even his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord. God orders evil, and he judges evil. God's word comes to fruition. Zimri now sits on the throne, and he only will sit the throne for seven days because, oddly enough, he is not super popular in the army. Word of his coup gets out, and the army elects their own king by the name of Omri. There's some civil war mixed in, but Omri prevails. And early on, he comes to besiege Zimri comes round the city. And this is what we read in verse 18 of chapter 16. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Why? Because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. He realizes that he has sunk from the siege, and so he goes into the house and sets fire to himself and the palace. What a juxtaposition. Chapter 8 in Judah, Solomon is building the temple, and the people are worshiping, and here, the new king of Israel in the north, burning the house down on top of himself. It is a parable for how things are going among the people of God. Judgment is coming. Zimri's reign ends with fire and ash. It is just really amazing here in verse 19. He's, he's told, we're told he's accountable for doing evil and walking in the way of Jeroboam for his sin which he committed making Israel to sin. It's kind of like he's only on the throne seven days, man. That's a little harsh. I think it teaches us that sin must be uprooted swiftly and decisively. We must deal with sin right away. Zimri dies, 
that refrain of these few chapters comes. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Zimri's heart was wrong and his feet were pointed in the wrong direction. Which brings us to the last king we're going to cover this morning, Omri. Omri's reign is really detailed in six, eight-ish verses. And the conclusion of the author is simple. Verse 25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. What's interesting about Omri is how successful he was. Of course, the author's picked up on this monotony of idolatrous kings. He's trying to give us that feeling of being bored and being depressed by sin. But in Omri's case, it's really interesting because he was really historically significant. He was one who, uh, like Steve Jobs might say, left a dent in the world. Extra biblical evidence clues us into some of Omri's accomplishments and his successes. He was a great military leader. He was an ace politician, an economic wonderkin. Overall, he was an effective king. He purchases a hill in Samaria, verse 24, becomes a worship site important later on. And it was a steel. It was an impregnable site. It was a, on a trade route. He, for 150 years after his death, is remembered. The Assyrians refer to the land of Israel as the house of Omri. 150 years after his death. Indeed, uh, there is an old artifact called the, the Mesha Steel. I think I said that right. Probably said it wrong. Mesha Steel, Mesha Steel A. It's also called the Moabite Stone, so that's what we'll go with. Uh, the Moabite Stone, it's, it's in the, the Louvre in Paris. And on it, we have Omri's military conquests against the Moabites recorded for us. So from, from a worldly perspective, Omri is the most significant king in the history of Israel with the exception of Solomon and David. He's a big deal. Why then does our author not tell us more about him? Or about his many successes? Did the author not know how awesome Omri was? Davis puts it best. The writer is not saying he is ignorant of Omri's achievements. He is saying they don't matter. What matters at the end of the day is Omri's heart and the way that he walked. Friends, what does Jesus tell us? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I think it is frightening when I consider myself sometimes, and maybe some of you ask myself this question, would I be content 
Am I sometimes content to live a Christless life if it means worldly success? How many of us would be content to live a Christless life if we could leave a dent on the world like Steve Jobs or Omri? How many of us, in our heart of hearts, bow down to the idols of worldly approval and worldly success more often than we bow to Christ? Brothers, remember that success is a poor index for faithfulness. Sisters, the world's approval is fleeting and worthless. Church, the, the treasures of the world will be eaten up by moth and rust. The idols we are tempted to serve cannot save. They do not last. Those who worship idols become like them. Lifeless. Who has your heart? What direction are your feet pointed in? Brothers, know what matters. And do not mistake God's ordering of sin for his approval of it. Do not mistake God's patience with sinners and sin for indifference. Judgment eventually comes to the house of all who walk like Jeroboam. Repent. Seek first the kingdom of God. Walk according to what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Like David or Asa. Walk like Jesus. Go give John the last word. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to not succumb to the temptation of valuing success above faithfulness. We ask that you would train our hearts to invest in what matters in your people, in your kingdom, in your word. Pray that you would give us hearts that are set on Christ. You would help us to offer to you obedience as we believe in all the promises you've made to us. Help us to live as your holy people to know what really matters, which is your glory. Father, help us to live for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.